All right. Hey, folks. Jeff Salzman here, and welcome back to the Daily Evolver. It's Monday, November 27th, 2017, and I hope my fellow citizens of the States at least had a good Thanksgiving weekend. I know I did, uh, and uh, it's, it's good to be back. And I'm here with Corey DeVos, uh, Editor-in-Chief of Integral Life. Hey, Corey. Hey, Jeff. Good to see Hi. you, man. Good to see you. So today, I want to talk about my continued daily evolving <laughs> on this issue of trying to integrate the piece of the truth of our culture's nationalists. And, you know, that's an integral project. And, uh, and it's not just happening in, in the U.S. It's, it's happening all through, the, all through the world in a sense, but certainly in the first world, in the, in the leading developed world, uh, we have, of course, Brexit in, in Great Britain. We have political turmoil in the last week in Germany, largely over immigration. We have a couple of weeks ago, 60,000 Poles marching in Warsaw. 60,000 is a lot. You know, and um, you have to notice that you have to, you know, pay attention to that. And we have a new right wing chancellor in Austria, this Sebastian Kurz, who's uh, 31 years old. And I don't know a lot about him, but he said something that I actually liked. It sounded kind of integral to me. He said, it's not about letting immigrants in. It's about acculturating them when you do so that the positive character of Austria or the country can endure. So, you know, that's who Austria got. <laughs> we got the booby prize here in America with the election of Donald J. Trump as the president of the United States. I still have a hard time wrapping my head around that. But, um, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, the, the advanced democracies. We see Hungary, Russia, Turkey, even China. You know, she is uh, bringing back uh, the traditional Chinese religions and, um, you know, focusing on a sort of Chineseness that people want. And, and what it is, is, uh, you know, from an integral perspective, it's a, a certain flinching back or re retreating from the headlong rush that cultures were taking into modernity in, in, in terms of globalism on, in the lower right-hand quadrants. That's the exteriors of the collective. That's our system. So we have this global system where all of a sudden I am competing with a Chinese person for wages, you know. And then on the lower left, the interior of the collective in quadrant theory, we have multiculturalism, this, the postmodern contribution, uh, where, you know, Diversity is seen as a, a, a virtue in and of itself. And it, it is, in a way, but it has to be integrated. Anyway, what we're seeing is that traditionalists and early modernists, who sort of have a center of gravity or have a self-sense of traditionalists, are saying enough. You know, you know, we've gone far in that direction. It's time that we want, we want our countries to matter. And... You know, it's just something that we can see developmentally that um, na national identity for traditionalists is a bigger part of their personal identity than national identity is for modernists. 
by the time we get to modern, you know, fully, patriotism, it's, it's quaint, you know, it might be something we do in the 4th of July, but, you know, it doesn't have that deep meaning that it does for traditionalists. For a lot of traditionalists, being an American is one of the best things of their life, about their life. And that's true for people all over the world. They, they all love that identity. Uh, by the time, of course, you get to post-modernity, as most of us liberals are, uh, patriotism and stuff like that, it begins to be not just quaint, but embarrassing. And even pernicious. I mean, the, you know, the, one of the projects of, you know, certainly advanced postmodernity is the deconstruction of these, you know, myths of national triumph and, you know, superiority. And it's a good thing, actually. But, you know, so it's all in the mix here. But I have to say that I'm one liberal <laughs> who's glad to be pulled back a little bit into seeing and reappreciating uh, what I thought that was we had sort of transcended. Uh, and we can't transcend it until we really include it. And so maybe it's not even being pulled back as much as it is being pulled forward into a new kind of world-centric nationalism and every country exceptionalism. And I actually like that. And you know, I, I want to see it. I, I'm no great traveler, but I've traveled around. And of course, you know, I'm a you know, citizen of the world, you know, big postmodern identity. Um, but there's something that I see when I go to these countries like German, Germany. There's a, there's a Germanness that is palpable and beautiful. I mean, it's, you know, we all have our histories, but there's a beautiful side to that to Italianness and just feel the shift as we move into the feeling of Italianness, Mexicanness. You know, this, there's this new movie, movie Coco that's like the big hit uh, this last weekend, the Pixar movie about uh, Mexico, and I'm excited to see it. Uh, Canadianness, <laughs> you know, it's, it's real. It's, it's something. Uh, you know, I had this long uh, weekend of, of, uh, for Thanksgiving, and, you know, I was home a good bit and cooking and stuff. And, uh, and I got into this show that I'd heard about, but I had no idea how, uh, you know, magnetic it was for me. The, British bake, the Great British Baking Show. And it's this, you know, reality show where they have these 12 British people who are out in this tent in this beautiful British estate. I mean, it's just sylvan. It's just fabulous. And there's a creek and the whole thing is big tent. And they all have this like kitchen island with an oven and so forth. And they do this sort of gentle competition where they cook scones and pies and tea cookies. And, you know, they don't all have perfect teeth. And they all have sort of a British sense of humor. And it's just so, and one of them's Indian and she brings sort of the spicy side to things. And, one of them sort of gets voted off at the end, and but yet it's all very loving and very civilized. And <laughs> I watched six of them this weekend. And there's many more. I mean, there's many seasons, and I'm so excited that I have the show. So it's, it's just this sort of infusion of Britishness that I appreciate. I don't want that to be homogenized away. And that's not even to mention getting into, you know, something like Nigerianness. Uh, the, the New York Times had an article 
uh, a few days ago about the new young writers, authors, writers coming out of Nigeria and how they're not just writing for foreigners. They're, they're writing for their own people. The, the, the first wave of Nigerian writers tried to explain Nigerianness to white people, but these people are writing for their own people. And they were talking about some of these books, and it's like, I can't wait to get my hands on them, you know. And so anyway, there's all of it. Iranianness, Japanese-ness, everything has a texture, everything has a flavor that we don't want to be homogenized away. And even if we did, and maybe some of us did and still do, you know, the multicultural, uh, you know, when you really think that that is the way. Um, our more traditional sisters and brothers are not going to let us. That has become apparent. So, um, you know, the challenge is to, you know, integrate more, integrate them more than they integrate us. You know, that's, that's always a dicey one. Uh, but also, I think one of the most difficult challenges is that, um, you know, we, we live in a culture that is currently quite polarized. We're in a culture war, and it's right on schedule in a way, and it's nothing to be alarmed about it, it, as long as it stays peaceful, and I think it will. Uh, but which side of the 50-yard line you're on really matters. So if you get associated, for instance, with nationalism, with the positive side of nationalism, then you're in the same side of the street as the, as the racists. And, you know, I uh, shrink away from that. And, and, and so it, it's sort of dicey to, to, to live in and feel in to the piece of the truth that traditionalists have without buying the rest of it. And, you know, without getting associated or, or afraid of the rest of it. And, you know, just as I was sort of sorting this out, I got this email from one of my wonderful listeners, uh, Petty Heipel. And she says, Jeff, I'm just sending you my integral pondering for the day. So this is what she sent me. It's just a paragraph. She said, something we talk a lot about in the integral community is the capacity to see the value in different worldviews and perspectives and that everyone has a piece of the truth. I've been noticing lately, too, that it seems everyone also has a piece of falsehood or ignorance. So a challenge for me has been discernment. Excuse me. I think we can easily tend to overly adore someone and believe everything they say without discernment. Or, on the other hand, completely dismiss everyone someone shares because some part of what they are sharing isn't true or shows ignorance. It's so easy to make someone totally right or totally wrong in our minds and either miss their wisdom or miss where they may be mistaken. And I love that. I, I, I wrote her back. I said, Penny, you took me into new territory, and I mean it. Um, and this is, I think this is part of this thing that I'm trying to sort out, and I think a lot of us are, about integrating so that we can move forward bigger, you know, more grown up. So, um, so okay, so now I want to, you know, try that on with one of the <laughs> great villains of, uh, at least in liberal culture, one of the great demons of liberal culture, and that's Ann Coulter. And, um, and she wrote a column 
criticizing Trump uh, from the right. And, you, you know, it, it, it's interesting, her worldview, her perspective from the right, because she's not a Republican and never Trumper, you know, like the William Crystal and the guys that, you know, the Weekly Standard and, you know, the sort of establishment. She's actually criticizing him from the right, uh, that, that he's actually not doing anything on his nationalist agenda. And I want to look at that and find the piece of the truth in there. And I think there is one. That's why, you know, I'm going to share this column. This column, I don't know when it was, in this last few weeks, at any rate. It was recent. And, um, of course, any effort <laughs> to de-demonize Ann Coulter is not going to be reciprocated, uh, to say the least. I mean, literally. She, she's, here, here's, here's some of the titles of her books. The first. Demonic, how the liberal mob is endangering America. So demonic, so there we are. Slander, liberal lies about the American right. Guilty, liberal victims, in quote, and their assault on America. Treason, liberal treachery from the Cold War to the war on terrorism. So, um, you know, she's, uh, she's a, 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 a culture warrior on the right against the evil liberals. She's also a big Trump fan. Her latest book, <laughs> I have to say, I do love the title, In Trump We Trust, E Pluribus Awesome, with an exclamation point. So, you know, she makes, uh, I saw it was like $8 million a year uh, selling this point of view that she believes to her people. And she does it, of course, as you can see, in this sort of tradition of the provocateur, you know, and Provocateurs are always so offensive uh, when they're on the other side, but when they're, they're on our side, we like them. You know, I always think of the merry pranksters uh, of the left in the 60s and that whole line of Jerry Rubin and, you know, steal this book and all of the stuff that lefties were doing to just sort of offend and get attention. I mean, it's a, it's a, um, <laughs> a standard uh, 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 strategy for people who are feeling like they're being left out and not getting attention. Gays for years, you know, doing these gay pride parades. I've, I've often mentioned this, but the, the, one of my favorite Onion headlines of all time, uh, The Onion is one of our humor newspapers here in America, uh, and it's very funny. Uh, and it showed, it was like a little newspaper, and on the front, it shows this uh, gay rights parade and there's the float with the guy and the assless chaps and the, you know, feather boas and all this shit. And the headline is, Gay Rights Parade Sets Gay Rights Back 50 Years. And that's sort of what you think would happen. You know, people would be like, you know, I hate the gays. But they actually don't. They actually look and they see and, the, you know, people were so curious about each other. We just can't stay out of each other's hair. So it, it actually moves the ball. So I want to, you know, sort of give her a little provocateur space uh, because the truth is she's a serious conservative. Um, and she has been, as she puts it, since kindergarten. She grew up in a Joseph McCarthy loving household. Uh, she uh, is a lawyer. She edited the law review at her college. I'm forgetting what college, but she worked for the Federalist Society when she graduated. A big conservative think tank, basically. And she is, uh, um, a, you know, very committed Christian. As, as she puts it, I'm a Christian first and a mean-spirited bigot of conservative second. 
And she says, Christianity fuels everything I write. Being a Christian means I am called upon to do battle against lies, injustice, cruelty, hypocrisy. You know, all the virtues of, of the church of liberalism. So you can see that she's a holy warrior, and she, she actually is a holy warrior in the sense that there is, some sense there is some part of her that is down in this sort of red traditional, early traditional, where, well, I'll just read this. This is, this is her most inflammatory line. This is, this is what got her fired from the National Review, uh, which is a conservative, you know, respectable conservative magazine. This is what she wrote three days after 9-11. Uh, 2001 with the trade towers. She says, it's preposterous. She was talking about the um, screening at airports. It's preposterous to assume that every passenger is a potential crazed homicidal maniac. We know who the homicidal maniacs are. They are the ones cheering and dancing right now. We should invade their countries, kill their leaders, and convert them to Christianity. That's the line. Uh, she goes on, we weren't punctilious about locating and punishing only Hitler and his top officers. We carpet bombed German cities. We killed civilians. That's war. And this is war. And, um, and a lot of traditionalists, they resonate with that. I don't know about the kill their leaders and convert them to Christianity part. That's red. You know, well, that's early traditional. But... Um, but the idea of why America can't win a war when we did World War II and you know the whole thing uh, doesn't make sense to traditionalists because they don't really get moral evolution. And moral evolution says you can't kill civilians willy-nilly like we did. Now, you know, there's a whole argument about that. But the truth is we don't win wars the way we used to because we don't have the stomach to fight them the way we used to. And that's progress. Anyway, um, you know, her, 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 uh, one of her statements, this is the one that got me. This is the one that made me hate Ann Coulter for years. She was, this is during, this is about gay marriage. And she said, I think it was on Bill Maher's show, but it just, it just got me. She said, nobody's stopping gays from getting married. Gays can marry any one of the opposite sex that they want. <laughs> yeah, like you want me marrying your daughter. Anyway. Uh, you know, but it turns out that actually Ann Coulter has this gay following of drag queens who do her and she loves them. And there's this whole thing that uh, is going on that um, she really loves the gays personally. So I don't know. Anyway, uh, but here's one uh, that she got a lot of flack for. And it's sort of an interesting koan to me. Here's, here's what she said. She said, whites are called racists merely from mentioning the fact that current immigration law is intentionally designed to reduce their percentage of the population. Whites are called racist for merely mentioning the fact that current immigration law is intentionally designed to re reduce their percentage of the population. And that is actually factually true. Uh, but it's just the product of what I think is an unexamined assumption that comes with the green world-centric view. I mean, of you know, I would read that and think, of course that's true, and I'm glad it's true, you know, because a world-centric view just sees the truth of diversity is better than conformity. 
And it actually is. It's, you know, a higher stage of development where you start to turn and be friends with the people who used to be in your out group and you literally get a bigger circle of people who are in your circle of moral consideration. Uh, but that's not true for traditionalists. They draw that circle closer. And so that's what we're dealing with. And, you know, they also hold this gold of our cultural heritage in a way that, you know, brings the reverence that it deserves. So this is part of the teasing apart of what I think we're doing as integralists. Because what we want as integralists is we want both. We want diversity and we want full cultural uh, uh, I don't know, conformity is the right word, but the appreciation of what it is to be an American that everybody has in our case. So anyway, here's, here's the column I was talking about. And this is, is, it's titled, Headlines from an Administration That's Not Putting America First. And here's what she writes. We are now nearly a quarter of the way through the entire Trump presidency. And depending on how the 2018 election goes, we could be at the halfway mark because if the Congress turns Democratic, you know, any legislative initiatives of Trump is over. And she said, here are some headlines from that presidency. One, defying Turkey, U.S. decides to arm Kurds in Syria. Two, Iraqi leader in Washington gets Trump's assurance of U.S. support. Three, Trump administration lifts sanctions on Sudan, citing progress. And fourth, Trump plans visit, visit to Asia to buttress key Korea policy. She goes on, there are thousands of them. Day after monotonous day, in the last 10 months, has a single manufacturing job been created in Trump's America? Has there been one opioid death avoided? Has one foot of the wall been built? What does a laid off steel worker, his town drowning in Mexican heroin, think when he reads daily headlines like this? As Trump's peacemaker, Kushner finds common goals and friction in Middy's trip. Well, we didn't get the wall, but thank God it's pedal to the metal on resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. At the end of Trump's term, this is her, of course, it, at the end of Trump's term in office, I promise you, the Israelis and the, Palestinians, and the Palestinian, Palestinians will not be living in peace and harmony. Let me say that again. At the end of Trump's term in office, I promise you, the Israelis and the Palestinians will not be living in peace and harmony. Kim Jong-un will not have called for democratic elections. ISIS, Al-Shabaab, Al-Qaeda, and the Muslim headchoppers du jour will not have suddenly become pro-life. The rest of the world will still be a God-forsaken cesspool. Wow. You know, it's, it's, so, it's funny. I, I feel sort of repulsed, but I also feel this, this old remnants of, yes, we're America. My screw the rest of the world glands. You know, those, they start pumping, you know. I, so I, I could feel that. And then she goes on. That's why Trump's campaign slogan to make America great again was such a hit. Beyond the self-evident attractiveness of a president caring about us instead of the rest of the world, Fixing our country is at least something that's achievable. And I, I want to read that again. I think that really does hit at a piece of the truth. 
She says, beyond the self-evident attractiveness of a president caring about us instead of the rest of the world, fixing our country is at least something that's achievable. And it certainly is more achievable than fixing the world. Our tender, she goes on, our tender ministrations in Iraq, Afghanistan, and two other countries has accomplished nothing good and all too often a lot, a lot that's bad. We haven't been able to get our leaders to focus on America's problems for 30 years. This is this globalism thing. The seduction of foreign policy is too great. Yet the rest of the world's problems will never be solved, but it seems so adult and serious to be working on them. If there was ever a presidential candidate who seemed immune to the siren song of foreign policy, we thought it was Trump. We voted for a reality TV star. We didn't want gravitas. So that's interesting. And, you know, there's something I can agree with there. You know, our tender administrations, I would never agree in a million years that it has done no good. I think a lot of, you know, foreign aid and so forth has done good. It probably has been wasted. There's better ways to do it. But in terms of the wars, I'm not so sure, you know. And how does one turn one's back on, you know, the rest of the world in a way that, is, uh, you know, not really turning your back. So I, I think there's something there that's, 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 that's true. But, you know, what, what we're doing, of course, is always we're integrating so that we can move forward in a new, bigger view that includes the best, the pieces of the truth of all of the integrated worldviews. And, uh, and she actually talks about this later in the column. She talks about an integration that she fears is going to happen if the Democrats, her hated liberal opponents, start co-opting some of the message of Trump. And that would be an integration. And here's how she describes it. She says, Democrats realize that Trump's main campaign issues, immigration and trade, main campaign issues, immigration and trade, that's the um, cultural and the systems, the lower, lower, lower quadrants, that these were kryptonite to his opponents. The Democrats, the media, even Republicans, through everything they had at Trump, he still won. Democrats know how Trump did it. Unfortunately, they also know how to use the same kryptonite against him. You will notice that smart liberals are not saying we need more pussy hats, more angry rhetoric, more Rachel Maddow conspiracy theories. No, the smart liberals are begging Democrats to steal the central components of Trump's death-defying campaign, immigration and manufacturing. Andrew Sullivan recently wrote in New York Magazine, I don't, and this is Andrew Sullivan, I don't believe it's disputable at this point that the most potent issue behind the rise of the far right in America and Europe is mass immigration. It's a core reason that Trump is now president. And then she goes on, Andrew Sullivan called the Democrats' sudden decision to treat illegal immigrants as a beloved constituency constituted political suicide. And I'll read that again. She called the Democrats' sudden decision to treat illegal immigrants, illegal immigrants, as a beloved constituency was political suicide. 
Uh, and then she goes on, this week, former Obama administration official Steve Ratner called on Democrats to abandon liberal shibboleths and focus on winning the votes of white working class men. Wage stagnation, he wrote in the New York Times, is our most pressing economic challenge. And then finally she writes, and of course, several months ago, the Democrats' meticulous pollster, Stanley Greenberg, produced a report telling Democrats that to beat Trump, they need to win back the nation's working class communities, starting in the formerly industrial states and the upper Midwest. Upper Midwest. So that's Ann Coulter sort of warning her fellow tribal Republicans that if you don't get your act together on these issues that Trump won on, the left is going to co-opt them. And they probably are in some way. That's, again, not as much either or, you know, immigrant or no immigrant, wall or no wall, but just a bigger appreciation of the piece of the truth that people who believe that have which is there is something precious about maintaining the culture of the country and that we're not going to give that up easily. And it's sort of a new nationalism. And it's not the militant nationalism. This is where there's a confusion. It's sort of a pre-trans fallacy in a certain way. But it's not the militant nationalism that has, you know, been all of human history, certainly since the, uh, you know, middle of the last century. Uh, you know, the militant nationalism fueled and, and tribalism fueled human history. But now, as we have in the center, at least center of gravity, modern countries, we have a cultural nationalism that wants that that's the fight. You know, nationalism, cultural na nationalism wants to be seen and respected and integrated. And, you know, I'll take cultural nationalism over militant nationalism any day. It's progress. So. 